This is the All In Gospel Podcast, where we go through the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, every week. If you like the podcast, go ahead and subscribe or join us at allingospel.com. Enjoy your Bible study. Blessings. So we're in Exodus 20. We will pick up in verse 12. But as a quick recap, uh, and, and I think when you do a chapter, I just kind of want to catch up to these things. I, uh, the God spoke all these things saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. That was commandment one. You shall not make for yourself carved images, commandment two. Three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then number four, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So we've got these four commandments that we've already kind of dealt with. Um, I thought it might be, before we get into number five, which is one that Grant and Katie really need to pay attention to. Um, rules are laws for our life, and they can be encountered in one of two ways. And I hope a lot of you experienced this as you reflected last week and you went through your week and whatnot. You can either find rules restrictive and inhibiting, like don't be loud during art time. And for people that want to do what they please, laws are incredibly restrictive. And they are mean, and they're horrible, and they're nasty. But in the context of chapter 19, you're already in a covenant with God. The second way you handle rules is that they're refreshing and comforting. If I follow the rules, I'm on good terms with my teacher, or my parents, or my boss, or my God. And those rules become something that help us to live peacefully with other people that follow the same rules. And they create community, because we know what to expect from each other. If I can expect that, that we're not going to commit adultery, then I don't have to worry about my wife talking to other guys at the church, right? Because we're under the same covenant. We're under the same laws. And we then have freedom to act and do things without suspicion, jealousy, locks on everything we own, right? And all these kinds of things. So God's law addresses our ability to live well with each other. And it's coming from the person who made us. He knows how we're wired. And he knows that those things that will cause an anxious life can be dispelled very quickly if we have this kind of set of laws. So the next set of laws, the first four that we did last week, are how we relate to God, right? God comes first, all these things. The next set of rules are how we relate to each other. And these can sound really inhibiting and restrictive, or they can be like, yeah, this is wonderful. If we all live under these laws, I don't have to worry about getting killed right? Like this is a wonderful, refreshing set of laws that if we just do this, we can thrive as a people. And so as he's giving these uh, to the Israelites, that's the natural outcome of the law. Verse 12 is where we pick up tonight. And it says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long upon the land, which the Lord, your God is giving you. So this is the only one of the 10 commandments that comes with a particular blessing. If you keep it, if you keep it, then there's a long life. So Ephesians 6, 2 says, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Um, so even in the New Testament, they kind of recognize, or the, the early Jews would have recognized, this is kind of a unique thing, that it comes with a, a blessing or a promise. Or there's another way to interpret this thing. In the original Hebrew, again with the root terms, um, this could be an expectation of time. So honor your mom and dad is a great commandment for little kids, but Moses or God himself is talking to an entire nation of people, not little kids. So we parents are guilty of taking this commandment and making it all about childhood. It's not. 
it's really about an it's an adult commandment for an adult people. Um, and I want to unpack that just a little bit. Literally translated, it says, honor, mom, dad, days, land, God gives. And in the Hebrew, remember, we insert all the middle words. So how do you translate that or how that, that puts together? There's no you. In our English version, it says you. You shall, right? There's no you in the Hebrew. Uh, it's an implied thing. So days long land, Yehovah Elohim gives is the second part of that verse. It could then be talking about the nation's time in Canaan, or more, I think because this is a universal law, it'd be better translated as for all time. For as long as Yehovah gives the land to the people, that's how long you honor your father and mother, right? To translate, honor dads and moms all the days that God gives them on earth. This could be a time span, not an age level. Does that make sense? It's a hard thing to explain, right? So the context of the commandment then, as with all the other nine commandments, is a timeless law for all people. That means as adults, there should be something to this honoring our parents that we do. And if that's the case, the word honor is kavod in the Hebrew. Its primitive root is also a primitive root. Remember, we've been talking about how a lot of these commandments are primitive roots, which means, and I'll review on that, that means it's without time. That means you don't, it's not yesterday, today, or tomorrow. It's all time. And it's in every sense of the word that could possibly be used. So honoring your parents is to honor them in every possible sense of the word to do that. And now if any of you have parents that are clearly not how you want to grow up, that can be, sorry, Grant, that's, pro, that's really tough to understand because how do you honor your parents when your parents maybe are going down a path you know you don't want to go down? And that's a tough one. And I speak from... Uh, you know, some experience when you watch your parents do things, you're like, man, I don't want to do it that way. I want to do something different than that in my life. And that's probably healthy. It's not a bad thing. And it's not less a, a knock against your parents. Sometimes it's just you becoming your own person and seeing who you want to be. The primitive root of kavod is to be heavy. And we translate that as honor, but it means to make heavy or to give something weight and so I was let, I, I'm looking at this thinking, so we're supposed to make our parents fat. Yes. Like this is about feeding your parents, Grant. <laughs> Katie, that's what this is all about. Um, but I don't, I, I think the heaviness here is, is a, not a literal heaviness. You're not making your parents fat, but you're giving them weight or clout. And that's something we can do for our whole life. This is not necessarily about obedience, though there are other passages on that directly connected to children. If you look in the Proverbs, there are passages that talk to young people about obeying their parents, right? But this is to honor your parents. And so when we load our parents with honor, overwhelming honor, respect, loyalty, um, we heap honor upon them, we give them weight and status. So to speak well of other people is all a good thing. When you speak well of your parents, you ascribe worth to your parents, even in their sin or even in their mistakes, you give your parents amazing credibility right? And that's hard to understand until all of your friends have kids. And then you start looking at how the kids treat their parents and you start gaining respect or not so much respect for your friends because of how their kids treat them. Because you think, wow, what's going on in that home and how are things happening in that space? So ascribing significance to mom and dad is a way to honor them. Their words should weigh in on what you say, but it doesn't say that you necessarily need to do everything they say but you should listen to your parents when they have something to tell you, right? So 
one thought of this, and you're looking at America today, and one of the things, and this is hard to talk about because a lot of our families do this, right? But one of the things we do with old people, because if we're talking about honoring them or giving them weight all of the days of their life, it kind of is talking about how we treat old people. At some level, what do we do with old people in America? Oftentimes, we throw them in convalescent homes, or we throw them in hospices, or we put them in nursing homes, um, versus making the sacrifice of maybe having one person stay home with mom and dad and take care of them in their old age. Do you know what I'm saying? Because that's a financial sacrifice. We have two incomes in a family, and one of you has to quit your job to take care of mom and dad. That's a massive sacrifice that you have to make to do that. But it's one that God says to give parents weight. So one way to interpret this could also be, how do you take care of your parents in their old age? And that's a command for adults dealing with elderly parents. So it's a lot more convenient and easy to say that children should obey their parents it's a lot more difficult to look at this law and say, how do we honor our parents? And I think of my own dad. He's in Owatonna, and we maybe see him three, four times a year. So I'm really kind of thinking about that going, man, am I giving my dad a lot of weight in my life? Or do I know everything suddenly because I'm in my 40s? Or should I still listen to this man who has nothing but my best interest in mind? Because believe it or not, our parents actually want the best for us. They might think we're nuts, but they actually want the best for us in life. So what they say should have some impact. And when you're young, you just joke and say, whatever my parents say, I do the opposite and things tend to go well. As you get older, you start to think, maybe I should listen to my parents before I go do that thing that got me in trouble last time, right? Anyways, I think of my own, my own grandma and she's passed away now, so. But she would come to holiday events and she would tell stories. And a lot of the cousins, I have 18 cousins, a lot of the cousins would make jokes or laugh about her because she would tell these when I was a kid kinds of stories, right? And when Steph and I were dating, she came to one of our family get-togethers and grandma cornered Steph and was telling, regaling her with all these stories. And Steph just loved it. She's like, your grandma's awesome. She's great. But all the cousins were laughing going, ah, look, Stephanie got looped in by grandma and she's just over there. And when I was reading this, all I could think of was that image of my cousins really disrespecting grandma. They didn't give her weight, right? Because when people are old, they're easy to ignore. They're easy to pass off as from another century. They don't understand. They don't get it. And people like my wonderful wife actually respected and gave my grandma weight that all the people in the family had stopped giving her. And I thought, oh, it's super easy to do that. I also think of kind of the crass and harshness that we see in the media where we make fun of old people, we mock old people, we um, pick on them in some ways, or we're impatient with them when we're driving on the roads. Grant, Grant's laughing because he knows I'm, you know, you come up behind somebody and they're driving like an old person and you think, I know when I pass them, they're going to be an old person. And sure enough, they are. But are we giving them weight? Are we giving them honor when we disregard them even on our roadways? Versus going, ah, an old person, one of the veterans, somebody who survived to old age. And surviving to old age was a bigger deal in the ancient world than it is today, a lot bigger deal. Jesus takes this verse, um, he's asked about hand washing. Is it true that you and your disciples ate dinner before you washed your hands? That's against the law, you're going to burn in hell. And Jesus' response to that is he goes to this taking care of the elderly stuff. Do you ever pick up on that? Like that's your response to hand washing? But he says in Matthew 15, and I'm going to start in verse 3, 
And I'm going to wait until Steph turns there because she always gets mad at me when I don't wait for her. Yeah. Go forward two inches and then you're... Okay, good. All right. He answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses his father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father and mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift from God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you've made the commandment of God of no effect in your tradition, you hypocrites. First of all, this is why I love Jesus. He knows how to handle hypocrites. And he fights back a little bit. He bears his teeth and he stretches his knowledge. But look at how he uses this commandment. And by the way, what the Pharisees were doing is they would say, because we're priests, all of what we have are gods, because we're the sacrifice in the, the temple. Therefore, we don't have any money to honor our parents with because all of our money belongs to God. So our parents have to just fend for themselves. They were leaving their parents in nursing homes. Much worse, they were leaving them in state nursing homes or in that era to sit on the side of the street and not be taken care of. They were discarding old people. And in the ancient world, that happens in nearly every ancient world except for this one because of this commandment. Think of how cruel that is and how mean that is. So he was basically there commenting on his hand washing and he turns on him and says, you don't even take care of your parents. So from Jesus's perspective, this wasn't about children. This was about adults taking care of elderly parents. You see the difference? Also, after that, um, <laughs> that particular interchange, his disciples turn to him. And I like this in verse 12 of Matthew 5. Uh, the disciples go, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when, he, when they heard this saying? Like, they came up to Jesus and go, do you know you really ticked them off with that? And Jesus, of course, is like, yeah, of course. So in chapter 19, all the people say, we're going to serve the Lord. And to serve the Lord, you're supposed to serve each other and elevate, elevate and value and give weight to the old people in your society. So this week, call grandma. Call grandpa. Tell them how you're doing. Catch them up. Talk with them for a while. Even though you've heard all their stories and advice 20 times, hear it again and listen and know that they love you. So religion, tradition, and laws can be an excuse to break the covenant as what the Pharisees were doing. But the covenant comes before the law. The covenant is with God. We don't honor our grandparents because we want to hear their stories one more time. We honor and give them weight because God says, if you do that, you're keeping my commandment. And you do it for as long as they're in the land, right? If anyone does not provide for their relatives, 1 Timothy 5, especially for members of your household, you've denied the faith and you are worse than an unbeliever. That's extreme for taking care of grandpa and grandma, isn't it? This is important to God that you take care of your parents for as long as they're in the land. God's creating then order. I've been reading that Peterson guy. He's creating order out of chaos. Same thing that happened in Genesis, right? He's doing this as he did all the time from the beginning of time. He's showing us how to create order. And the order is take care of your parents, right? So there's an organization to this an honoring of parents that comes regardless of where you think you exist in the world. As long as they're alive, you're not the top dog. You give weight and honor to those seniors in your life. So there's a principle here of family, taking care of family, tenderness, honor, respect. And I say tenderness because when old, old people can't take care of themselves and you have to do it for them, there's a sweet, sensitive, nursing heart that comes with taking care of people in their old age, right? 
and it's really similar to taking care of little kids. So that's just the next one. And again, I'm guilty of it. Sorry, Dad. I, I don't spend enough time with my dad like I should. And if I really want to follow the Lord, this might be an area I target in my life and make it sacred for the Lord and just do that. You're really good about it. I didn't even talk about how much you talk to your mom. You still take care of your mom really well. My dad doesn't want to be taken care of. I think that's kind of my impression. He's like, why are you calling? <laughs> it's not to ask for money. It's really not. <laughs> Commandment number six is only one word. It reads as four words in my Bible. It's only one word. And it, it says in English, verse 13, you shall not murder. The word is ratash, which means no murder. It's the negative, don't do murder kind of thing. Uh, ratash means to break something or dash it in pieces or to murder somebody. It means, it's, it, that word in the Hebrew is very specific, but it's very broad in its implication. Anytime you dissemble someone else, you're committing murder. And you can dissemble them physically by ending their life, but it's not that word. That word is harag. That's to smite someone, right? There's another word for killing, which is muth. Like the Jewish people knew what killing was all about. Muth is to die or to make something dead, right? Shakat is to slaughter something, like an animal before you. So they had three other words for killing or ending life. This is not that word. Ritash is to kill something or disassemble something. And the second piece of that, or the connotation of it, is for your own gain. You kill something because you want to, because you're more important than that other thing. That's a big concept, right? It's really easy, as with all these commandments, there's the simple version. Well, don't kill people. Well, I've never killed people. I own that commandment. I'm good on that one. But that's not what the commandment is. It's the big, broad, primitive root. Never dissemble someone else because you want to. Never take someone else down a notch because you think you're more important than they are. Dang, if you put it in that sense, I'm totally guilty of that. I'm horrible. You're listening to a Bible teacher that has so far broken every commandment and does it almost all the time. That's your problem. <laughs> murder is at the big huge level yes it's taking someone's life because you think you're you have a right to do that it's doing it because you want to and in that sense and i thought this was interesting moses is standing there listening to god give these commandments to the people and moses was a murderer he took that egyptian guard's life because he thought it was the right thing to do right paul was a murderer because he sat by and he condoned murder and he called himself a murderer David wrote an order to send someone to the front because he wanted to be with his wife Bathsheba, right? He was a murderer because he wrote it with a pen. Paul was a murderer because he stood by and held coats. Moses was a murderer because at least he, you know, he went all in. He just killed somebody. Numbers 35.6 creates 48 refuge cities for Ratash. That's another place where this is used. But in that sense, they're talking about sometimes when Ratash happens, it was actually accidental. I didn't do it because I had a will to do it. I accidentally killed. We're out working in the field together. I said mush, and I didn't know someone was in front of my cow, and the plow went right over them. They died out in the field, and now everybody back at home thinks I killed them, and I didn't. That wasn't what was in my heart. In that little area of Israel, there were 48 cities I could run to and, and claim refuge where whoever the avenger of that person was couldn't kill me in that city. So it was kind of like, you know, 
being at base when you play games as kids or whatever. You can't be touched when you're at base. We're not allowed to hate, and murder is an act of hate. It's to disassemble someone because we think we can. So, and it's not just me saying this. The interpretation of this, if we go back to Matthew 5, this time I'm going to do verse 21. You might as well keep your finger in Matthew 5. Is it 15? Is that a typo? I have Matthew 5, 21. Look at that. Verse 5. Chapter 5. Verse 21. You've heard it said that it was said in the days of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, this is Jesus talking, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. You notice how the in danger ofs get worse and worse and worse, but the infraction gets, in our sense, gets lighter and lighter and lighter. So if we even call somebody else foolish, we're in danger of hell when we do that because we've disassembled them because we think we're better than them. This is a horrible kind of place to be because we all do this. Jesus, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with them, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of here till you've paid every last penny. Get along with people. Ratash. No murder. No dissembling. No breaking other people down. This is so hard and it's so demanding of us because everything in us thinks we're right, especially all of us educated, college-educated folks. We're right and those uneducated people are not. I haven't killed anybody. I'm good. But that's if I really love the Lord and I really want to follow his commitment, i got to break it down at that other level. Do I do this? Yeah. And I think if we're honest, we all do this. We all do it all the time. It's so interwoven into our flesh it's so part of how we're made, and it's something we're supposed to fight. Matthew 5 seems to go through the positive version of each of these don'ts in the in the Old Testament. It's going to move on while they keep your thumb there. They're going to talk about the sanctity of marriage, which seems to be one of the next commandments we're going to get to. It talks about oaths and then generosity and then loving your enemies, right? Jesus is basically going through these commandments, these how to deal with other people commandments, and in each one he's taking it to this bigger level. This is how these were meant to be read, and you're just summing it up as don't kill people. When we hold a grudge, Jesus says we retosh. When we murder, we're retoshing. We're dashing people to pieces, and we're guilty of it. That could be super offensive to some of you in the room. But it's how Jesus interprets these things, and I, I promised you I'd try to just go how we do this. So don't call people a murderers. Don't call them raka. Raka, by the way, was kind of a swear word for people. Uh, in that era. So it'd be like calling people nasty words. <laughs> Idiot, like today, is not necessarily a swear word for people. It's a lot lighter version of it. But it's still dissembling people. It's still saying something about people that's not nice. So give weight to your parents. Don't dissemble anybody, right? So we add weight to our parents for certainly, and we don't take away weight from anybody around us. Arguing then, 
is probably the most common way that we do this all the time. And in our society, this is horrible. We're losing the ability to rationally discuss issues in our, in our society. Sure. Sorry, my generation and the baby boomers are wrecking this. But you're walking into an American culture where when we argue the goal is to dissemble the other person. Instead of adding worth to that person, we try to break their arguments down and pick them apart. Instead of listening and being able to clearly understand what they say and repeat it back to them, we just try to show people how they're wrong. And our entire media system, especially around the news, is just guilty of this. They're always dissembling. They're setting it up that way. It's horrible. So never put yourself over anyone else. That's a hard commandment to follow. This is tough. The next commandment, it doesn't get better. I've never committed adultery, honey, but I'm totally guilty of this, and we'll, we'll get into it. Commandment number seven, you shall not commit adultery. Once again, only one word, na'af. Na'af means everything. It's both literal and figurative, which is where Jesus goes with this. It's not just literally having adultery with somebody. It's figuratively having adultery with people, right? It's all of it, na'af, okay? And it presupposes, and I like this, na'af presupposes that marriage is a holy and a sacred place. Don't break the covenant. So don't break the covenant with God, commandments one through four. Don't honor your parents, give them weight. Don't take away weight from any from else. And when you make a covenant with another person, na'af, don't break your covenants. And marriage is one of those great covenants. And we often read this commandment as only having to do with marriage. It has a lot more to do with that. Again, in that Matthew 5, Jesus goes right to keeping your oaths, right? And that oath-keeping is how he interprets na'af, right? Any breach of wedlock, Proverbs 6.32, Leviticus 20.10, even kissing other people, you're committing adultery. It's outside of time. It's before marriage, during marriage, and after your spouse has died, right? It's an all-time kind of thing. So when you do that, you break those commandments. It's applied to breaching the covenant with your spouses and with God too. Jeremiah 3, 8, 5, 7, 9, 1, 23, 14 are all areas where Jeremiah talks about spouse covenants and God covenants essentially being the same kind of thing. Marriage is supposed to represent our relationship to Jesus Christ. It's a covenant we make. We speak our words in front of other people at what we call a wedding and we make a covenant that we keep for the rest of our life. And it's supposed to be a sacred, unbreakable bond. So we symbolize it with a ring that just goes round and round and round and round in a precious metal that will never tarnish, never decay, never get rusty, because that will last forever. That's the goal, right? This is also with, and you're not supposed to break covenant with your spouse, you're also not supposed to break covenant with inanimate objects. <laughs> Blow up dolls are an adulterous act. Ezekiel 23:37. You're not supposed to commit adultery with idols or wooden objects or other such things. And I'm sad to say, I can say that most of you have a look of recognition. That stuff is all over in our culture. If I would have said this 40 years ago, my grandma would have said, what are you talking about? But we just, we know it's everywhere. That also includes pornography. But let me go a step further. It includes racy television where they talk about who's going to have sex with who next right? Soap opera TV. It's all about not off. Breaking that covenant with people is just, well, of course you get divorces and break covenants. Of course you do that. The later version, that idea of divorce, 
should only happen in the case of adultery. When there's actual, literal adultery inside where that bond is broken, that's the only cause for divorce, right? Even in sexual adultery, Jesus puts the standard way up there, right? Matthew 5.32, I'm just going through Matthew's commentary on the commandments. Whoever puts away his wife, save for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries the person that was divorced commits adultery. So divorcees should stay single for the rest of their life? And again, Jesus is showing us the law not to accuse, but to show what God intends. We get to know something. This is a reflection of God's image and intention for our life. When we make a covenant, we're supposed to keep it for the rest of our life. And that's beautiful. That's not restrictive. That's awesome. Because you can be free to move about knowing your spouse will be faithful to you the rest of your life. I can do, say, anything. I can be silly. I can tell horrible jokes. I can not shave for a month. And my wife will stay married to me for the rest of my life. It's totally freeing. It's not restrictive. And that's something that just becomes a real thing that we have to feel like we have to take a stand to even say that. Well, no, I'm not restricting myself to one person when I get married. I'm freeing myself to be myself with one person for the rest of my life. How do you look at the law? Is it restrictive or is it freeing? Is it beautiful? And I love the idea that I cannot have to worry about impressing people because I at least have one person who's stuck with me forever, <laughs> right? Matthew 5:28 says, but I say to you, whoever looks on a woman in lust after her hath committed adultery with her in his heart, with, with her in his heart. Even thinking of other women, looking at other women makes me guilty. And guys, I know we're in a mixed group right now. Guys, you all look a little bashful. You know you're guilty of that all the time. Girls, you're probably guilty of it too, but I'm not going to presume to know the female mind, right? But we're all guilty of this. We're as guilty of this as every other commandment that's out there, and so far we're hitting zero for seven, right? We're guilty. The good news is we are not lost to that guilt, and we're not slaves to it. And we're not slaves to this sin either. You really want to get out of that habit of looking at other people? What would it be like if I were married to him? He seems like such a nice guy, right? That pining after other people instead of the covenant you made with the person you made, keep your, get rid of that. And if you can't get rid of it yourself, it's because you're human. And so you go to the Lord and you go to that covenant and say, Lord, erase that in my heart. Help me to stop looking at or dreaming of or thinking of other people than the people I made my covenant with. And I'm talking to people that are, a lot of people in here aren't married. Start praying that prayer now. Start praying that prayer that you don't even have eyes for people that aren't going to be your spouse someday, right? That you have lots of friends, but they are platonic friendships. And you're acting in such a way that you would honor that person even after they're married. You would give weight or honor to that person prior to marriage. You wouldn't be ashamed to meet their future spouse based on how you behaved before they were married, right? That that's persistent all the time. This is a super hard law. Because if you look at the prophet Hosea, you know I was going to go there, right? You want to know how God deals with covenants? He calls Hosea to marry a prostitute. We'll get to Hosea, trust me. That person's job is to reflect and create an image of God's love for the church, God's love for his people, even though she's off having sex with everyone in town. 
totally idolatrous, totally breaking the covenant, totally disregarding the sanctity of marriage. And Hosea is called to love her anyway. So even in that situation where there is adultery, God's intention isn't to get the divorce. God's intention is to keep loving that person unconditionally forever and ever, regardless of the sin. And you think of the grace that was caused because when somebody commits adultery and breaks covenant, it's total betrayal, right? Now I'm ashamed of every moment I ran around in my underwear around my wife because she just went off and betrayed me. All that silliness is now shame. All that being myself is now humility and, and just an ugly guilt, right? Maybe I shouldn't have said this. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. And that divorce, that adultery just breaks people in a horrible way. If you've experienced somebody that's gone through a divorce, it's totally destructive in their life. Psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, in all regards, it's horrible. So let's talk more about adultery. John 8, verse 3. And you know this story. I'm just reminding you of these things, right? It's one of the more mysterious passages in the Bible. But it's a beautiful story of God's grace. And even though there's law, and again, I'm being really hard on this sexual sin and adultery thing, but look at how Jesus handles this, right? Yes, there's a law. There's a rule here. But look at what God does with that. The covenant comes first. Verse 3, John 8. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought him to a woman caught in adultery. The word is the same as we're reading in the Old Testament. And when they heard, had her set in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, that such should be stoned. But what do you say? They said this testing him, Jesus, that they might have something with which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote words in the ground with his finger as though he did not hear them. He didn't hear the accusations. He pretended to ignore the accusations. So when they continued asking him, Jesus, Jesus, stop drawing in the sand. He raised himself up and he said to them, who, who is without sin among you? Let him throw the first stone at her feet. And again, he stooped down and he wrote in the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in his midst. And when Jesus raised himself up, he saw no one but the woman. And he said to her, woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, nobody, Lord. And then Jesus said to her, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus has this beautiful approach to sin. Yeah, sin's horrible. It's bad. It's a breach of covenant. But there's, there isn't a need for us as humans to go attack each other over this stuff. We're all in the state where we're sin, and that Jesus brought them all to their own conviction. And the mystery of it is, what did he write in the sand? And maybe he just wrote, you know, calmly and gently. Maybe he just wrote na'af, the original word. And that this has to do with anybody breaking covenant with anybody. Are any of you here able to say you've never broken covenant with people? You've never been a bad friend. You've never been a bad spouse, future spouse. The truth of the law doesn't reduce God's truth, but the only one that's able or in a position to judge anyone is God, and he chooses not to judge. In this case, he's not going to accuse her. What he wants is the covenant. Go and sin no more. Stop doing this. That's the intent. In verse 12, and this comes right after this story of mercy in the face of adultery, Jesus spoke to them again, the disciples saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. 
that's the conclusion of the woman and adultery story. I'm the light of the world. Follow me. Humans always find a way to get around the law or simplify the law or just make it about killing somebody. But it's not that. They want to just simplify and say, well, this is just about sex outside of marriage. This has nothing to do with my life or what I do. We make the Ten Commandments into things that only a very rare few number of people would do, but in every instance, Jesus tries to explain how we all break the commandments all the time. And it's what we do. The root here is a breach to any vow to others. It's literal and figurative. So make your vows and make them sacred. When you say yes, with everything in your power, yes is what's going to happen. If you say no, then no is what's going to happen. Within your power, God willing, your yeses are yeses and your noes are noes. And that's exactly what Jesus goes to next in, in chapter 5. Like, keep your word. What does this do? If we keep this commandment, you become predictable to the people around you. Because when you say, I will try to be there, and you don't show up, they know it's something happened. Because you're predictable. They know if you say you're going to be there, then with everything in your power, you're going to be there. If you say you're going to be faithful to something, you're faithful to something. You do it. And you're predictable, you're reliable, you're trustworthy. Now bring that all back to the simplified version. You want that in your marriage? You want to be trustworthy, reliable? You want your spouse to trust who you are? Then yeah, you keep your word. And then that creates this beautiful relationship with the people around you. I think it's more than just your spouse. I think it's about your brothers and sisters in the faith. And you say, I'm going to have a Bible study ready every Sunday night. Then you quit your job before you stop preparing the Bible study. You say that's what's important, then you do it, and you trust that God will work everything else out, right? It's about loyalty, fidelity, trust. Think of what God's building in his children right now. There's a nation of people that are being told, if you want to follow the God of the universe, then be loyal. Stop being selfish little jerks. But he only says one word, right? Verse 15, it's another single word. It means not steal. We interpret it as you shall not steal. Commandment number eight. Ganav is the root word, if you want to write that in your Bibles. G-A-N-A-V is how I spelled it so I could say it right. It's the root word for thievery, stealing, deception, to gain things in secret or stealth, right? This one's, there isn't really a deeper level because we all know what this is. It's to take things that aren't yours at any level. Um, I'm going to keep expanding it though. Clearly, you shouldn't take things that aren't yours Implicit in this is the idea of personal property. God believes that people own things because he's given it to them, right? And throughout the Bible, this is a concept that God allots things. The book of Job is the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. But there's a principle here. This God of the universe that created the world, he gives people things. This is not prosperity gospel. He also takes things away. So you will have exactly what God wants you to have when he wants you to have it, to do a work in your heart. So... When you take personal property, that's bad. Now, this always happens. This happens at the youngest of ages. If, any, if you work with toddlers, it's one of the first sins you see little kids do because they're little bundles of sin. If they see something they want, they just grab it and they take it. And then the other toddler starts crying or the other toddler will attack and do ratosh on the other person, right? <laughs> they are They are easy to see sin in little kids but you realize if you read the word you're like yeah we really are pretty much born that way we see things we take them we want them we get them and there are entire worldviews where that's what you do if the, the strong will survive right the law of the jungle is what we're going on here i think of this is corporate theft too like when you do things uh, well okay 
This is one of my favorites. We went to a Bible study at a church. This is what got us to first go to a different church. The leader of the Bible study really wanted us in the room so he could sell insurance to us. Because everyone at the Bible study realized at some point or not, he cornered us one-on-one and tried to sell insurance. So then you break that oath or that covenant with people and you start bringing the wish of money into that holy, sacred situation. Now nobody trusts anybody. So we're all looking around going, are we all just here because we're insurance people? Not only that, it was a bad insurance scam. Here was the scam. If you've heard of this one, you don't buy insurance. You buy other people's insurance. And when they die, they've already written over the profits to you. So it's guaranteed money you can't lose. So you're like, wait a second, that's not, if, if somebody buys life insurance, it's for themselves. Yeah, but they can pick anybody they want to inherit the life insurance. So we give them four grand now, and they give us 400 grand when they die. So all you got to do is wait out their death. And you're thinking, that's a total scam. That's not what it's supposed to be. But he's trying to, through secret means, he's trying to ganav, take things that aren't his. The whole root of this, of course, for us at the Bible study, we're like, nobody trusts each other. And frankly, most of you, the first time you came to this Bible study, if you're a normal, rational human being, you're thinking, what is Dicker's game here? Is he trying to sell us something? Does he have some agenda? And I'll just tell you, no, I just love the word and I want to go through it every week. And you're all welcome here to hang out with us. But there's a thing in the church right now where we're all suspicious of each other because we've all seen it, right? We've all seen people in the ministry for their own selfish gain. And we've seen churches that take advantage of that. Um, I'm going to go to another level because I saw this as a prof a lot. Plagiarism. Plagiarism is ganav too. Because you're taking someone else's words and you're putting them in their own text like they're your words. You've taken something from somebody that you didn't earn. You didn't work for it. So implicit in this law is you work for the things you get. God gives you things and you're supposed to work. Six days you shall labor. On the seventh you rest. Twisting other people's words, Jeremiah 23, 30. I am against the prophets, says the Lord, who steal my words, every one from his neighbor. Stealing is about taking other people's words and taking credit for it, even outside the written paper, right? Stories. When you tell someone else's story, I call this stealing their thunder, and it happens all the time with busybodies. They want to hear your story, and then they go around and tell everybody like it's a commodity that they just took from you. That was your story. That was my potato story. Why are you telling the potato story? Unless Steph says, no, you tell it, and then she's giving me a gift, and it's like, how generous. Okay, I'll tell the potato story, (laughs) right? Or the grape jelly story. When you take someone else's stories, that's a form of stealing. It's go make your own stories. Go follow the Lord to where you have your own experiences that you can share with people. Taxes. Has anybody lied on their tax returns? Not in this room, I hope. It's anticipated by the U.S. government that a certain percentage of people will lie on their tax returns. It's actually part of the United States budget. They count on people lying in this country. And the IRS, their entire institution's job is to identify and find people that are stealing from the U.S. government. Jesus' response is, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Why would you lie to the government about it? 
If you're paying a lot of taxes, my Uncle Noel used to say, it means you had a really good year. Praise the Lord, right? So you should be happy when you pay lots of taxes because you've had a great year that warrants those taxes being there. But it's anticipated. In fact, if you think of the cost of the IRS in the United States, that's an entire bureau of the federal government that if they didn't exist because we were all honest, our country would save millions of dollars, if not billions, if you count the taxes that weren't being stolen. So if you have an entire nation of people that don't steal, they can actually collect tithe and taxes in a way that's efficient and not pay for that. What about legal stealing? Like a clash action, we always get letters for class action lawsuits. So-and-so has done this bad thing or this company has done this thing and you may have been a part of that. Would you like to sign on with this lawsuit and then you can be part of this class action lawsuit? It's kind of like, well, no, I don't want to be part of your stupid. You're just going around trying to get money you didn't earn off of companies that were dishonest, like build a company, but why don't you give it away? You know, and the lawyers are just sucking off the whole system because they're not doing anything. That's a little conspiratorial. But it's Ganav. It's an entire industry of people looking to get money from something they didn't work at and they didn't earn and they didn't create. And it soaks off the whole system. Finally, Malachi 3.8. Malachi is a great book. I can't wait till we get there. Not giving your tithe or not tithes is another form of stealing from God. When we talked a lot about tithing. It's funny, I was laughing because I was like, it's amazing how we got to tithing last week afterwards. And we didn't even talk about tithing in the passage. But it's immediately where our hearts go because I think at, at this stage of life, you're kind of thinking about, well, how does that work? Um, and Malachi calls it thievery from God, ganav. You're taking things that don't belong to you. Paul presents an opposite to ganav in Ephesians, in Ephesians 4.8. Let him who stole steal no longer. That's kind of like what Jesus said to the woman. You used to commit adultery, don't do it anymore. So if you used to steal, don't do it anymore. But rather, he gives the opposite. Let him labor, working with his hands for what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. The reason you're supposed to work is so that you have things to give to people. That's the opposite of ganav, is taking things you didn't work for or working for things and giving them away. And I think that's just some, a nice contrast. Leviticus 19.11 expands on this. You shall not deal steal, you should not deal falsely, and you should not lie to one another. To lying is to steal truth from that person you're talking to. When you exaggerate and people think you're telling the truth, you're stealing from them a knowledge of the truth. Man, Leviticus, that's harsh, right? So ganav. No, I've never broken into anyone's house and taken their TV set. But have you lied? Have you exaggerated? Have you misled people? Have you taken truth from people that didn't belong to you? Have you stolen another story? Have you inflated your own self-importance? Instead of taking, you should give. Instead of exaggerating yourself, lift other people up. Instead of telling other people's stories, which is gossip, live your own life and let God do work in your life. So if it's all God's, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, What's yours to take in the first place? Why would you take from other people? Jesus in Matthew 5, I'm still in Matthew 5, moves from those marriage vows to keeping oaths, and then he gets right to this idea. Here's what he says. I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, give him the other one also. If anybody wants to sue you and take away your tunic, ganav, and let, let him have your cloak also. That's the opposite. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go two miles. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants, borrow, borrow from. 
wants to borrow from you, don't turn them away. In a covenant with God, God owns your cheek. He owns your tunic and cloak. He owns your time. He owns everything. If that's the covenant with God, then why would we take anything ever? Instead, we're supposed to be giving things away so we can bless people with what we have. The principles here, honesty, hard work, generosity, integrity, and all the only word that's there is ganav, just a primitive root. Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't say things about other people that aren't true. This implies, by the way, living in a relativistic society, this implies that truth is rel- that is not relative, right? So if there's a thing called false witness, then there must be a true witness. There must be truth. So against is added in. It presupposes a true witness. Neighbor is the word ria, means brother, friend, companion, anybody else, right? So if we give no false witness to, for, or against another person, in moments of decision, the only things that we say are things we know to be fact. I love this as a researcher. You never say something you don't know to be fact. You haven't seen it firsthand or done it firsthand. Don't put that stuff into the air because you're adding chaos to the world. Speak truth as, as clearly as you know truth. And when someone else disagrees with you, get to the bottom of the disagreement by seeking truth, right? Not attacking them like we do on the news stations, but going after, well, why did you say that? What do you mean by that? How did you come at that as your truth? A lot of times you might find that when we fill in gaps in a story, that we're bearing false witness, right? Be a truth speaker. So I'm guilty of this because my Irish grandmother liked to tell tall tales, <laughs> exaggerated tales, big stories. And you tell them in the context of reality. So it's a normal trip driving away. And then suddenly there's unicorns and fairies and leprechauns in the middle of your driving trip. And you just say it like it's what actually happened. But it's a tall tale. Flattery becomes this kind of thing. When you say things to people that aren't true just to try to get them to like you more, flattery is to bear false witness. To not speak when you're supposed to speak is a form of false witness. You're not adding truth when you know something's being spoken as an untruth. Nothing worse for people when, than when you say, I think what you're saying is not true, and I think you know that. Because I've seen this, and you were there too, and you're saying something different. To doubt someone else's motives, to make assumptions about people, when somebody acts a certain way, and you think they're being mean, and you haven't just asked them, you're creating your own false witness. You're lying to yourself about what people have seen or, seen or did. Don't try to read people's minds. Right, Because you're creating a narrative about that person that's not necessarily what they mean or what they said. Just ask them what they meant. Right, So bearing false witness. Alan Redpath says this, how many people, especially Christian people, revel in this? They delight in working havoc by telling tales about other people. To excuse the action by saying they believed that the report was true and that there was no intention to malign, and it is no justification. How many Christian people love to talk about other people in a way that hurts that person? Which is a form of ratash. We're dissembling them, right? How many times do we do that? And this happens all the time in Christian circles and in Christian news. Look at this guy from Hillsong that just walked away from the faith. Look at how quick the church has been to just jump on this guy. Ah, he was never a real Christian to start with. He's never this... Well, 
what made the like at some level if he doesn't want to believe believe be a believer or be in covenant with god that's his that's sad it's horrible but to attack everything the guy had done before that it just seems like this weird kind of thing when we were in, in our generation there was a christian music performer that had an adulterous affair and immediately like she had to leave the scene because nobody wanted to buy her records or do a thing and anything like that and that's probably good that's a natural consequence of being in that state when you're supposed to be a leader but why sit and tell stories around it why do we have to jump on people like that why do we delight in bringing other people down right In the Old Testament, eye for an eye is brought up as an aspect of God, right? That that's the harshness of the Old Testament. How harsh the Old Testament is, how mean the Old Testament is. The Old Testament is just about rules and meanness. Eye for an eye, that's just a horrible concept. You know what's interesting is eye for an eye is actually brought up in regards to this. It's a very specific passage, and I love this one because people will go after the Old Testament as eye for eye. No, it's not. The Old Testament and the New Testament have the exact same theology, right? Eye for an eye is brought up in Deuteronomy 19.21, if you want the reference, and it's specifically in regard to when people lie or say false things. And it says, and the judges shall make careful inquiry. When somebody's saying something, you're supposed to make an inquiry to discern the truth of it. If the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against their brother, then you shall do to him as he wanted done to his brother. You shall put away the evil from among you, and those who remain shall hear and fear whereafter they shall not again commit this evil, false witness. And your eye shall not have pity, life shall be for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot for foot. When people attack each other and say, this person should go to jail, this person should lose their foot, this person whatever, when people attack, they usually have a consequence in mind. That person should be fired, that person should be this. According to Deuteronomy, they're supposed to get what they asked for. When you find out that they were lying about that person, the consequence should be they get exactly what they thought some other person should get. That's a actually kind of fair and just. That's not a cruel, harsh God. That's somebody saying, no, you, you are creating your own punishment when you lie about people. Um, the Lord's Prayer has a, let us, um, how does it go? Depends on what version you do. Let us forgive my transgressions as I forgive the transgressions of others, right? I'm paraphrasing. Haman's plans for Mordecai in Esther 7-9, it's the same situation, right? Haman wanted Mordecai to be killed on the gallows. He actually went through the trouble of building the gallows in the square to hang Mordecai in front of the whole um, Persian empire, right? Now, Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, look, the gallows, 50 cubits high. 50 cubits high. These are huge. He was going to hang him like on a skyscraper which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. And the king said, hang him on it. If this is what Haman wanted to do to Mordecai, that's what we're going to do to Haman. It's the only fair thing. So it's not God that wants the eye plucked out. It's the God saying, this human being wanted that eye plucked out so bad, and we found out it was false witness, then we're going to do exactly what that human being thought was the just and fair punishment for that other person. They're going to get that consequence. If that's true, I really don't want to judge people ever, <laughs> right? If that's true, then every time I say the Lord's Prayer, I should be going, I don't want anybody to get fired. I don't want anybody to go through hard times. I don't want anyone to be 
called a bad person or nasty names or raka or idiot or any of that stuff. Like, I want everyone to be treated very nice and given back rubs every afternoon. <laughs> and there should be wonderful things that happen to everyone around me. So don't lie, speak the truth. And to do that with maturity and grace and truth and love is a lifetime journey and pursuit. In fact, false witness, those that give false witness hate people that speak truth. And I don't know if you've seen this in your lives yet, but if you're bold enough to speak truth, there will be people that absolutely hate that blunt, crass, harsh attitude. And they don't want to be around you, right? So even when there's conflicting stories and no reliable witnesses, and all you have is people speaking weird, a truth speaker comes in and says, I don't want to hear your gossip. Where did you, is there any, do you have any proof behind that? Then I don't want to hear you talking about other people. And that's just me saying, I don't want that in my space, right? But people are like, well, who's that person? Tell me I can't do that. Speaking that kind of truth is, you could argue exactly what got Jesus killed was false witnesses. This is the stuff that killed our Messiah, right? It's vicious, right? Jesus says, holy moly. Matthew 5 goes at the idea of oaths. Again, it's almost like we're studying Matthew 5 at the same time. Again, you've heard it said to those of old, don't swear falsely, but you shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your own head, because you can't make one hair white or black, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, for whatever is more from these is from the evil one. Anytime you speak a word thinking you have the power of those words, you're in danger of doing what the evil one does. So the principles here are be truthful, lift each other up, encourage each other, don't make accusations. Um, It's the whole sense of don't bear false witness. Let the words that come out of your mouth be true. Speak for yourself. At our church, we have a habit where we'll say, God willing, I'll be there. Like don't even say, I'll be there. Because you don't really have control over that, do you? If God truly controls your life, something might get in the way. You might not show up. So that's something. But when we first heard that, we were like, why why do they always say, God willing, I'll be there? It's because they're trying to not swear or make a promise that they can't keep. And I think that's kind of cool. Now we kind of do it too. You just learn the language. Commandment number 10, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's townhouse. (laughs) You shall not cover your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that's your neighbor's. You shall not covet that dog. Okay. This is interesting. This is the only commandment that's totally in the heart. So we've gone from commandments that are completely visible, unless you kind of take them in that primitive root sense, and then there's stuff in the heart too. But this one, there's no way to see other people covet things. It's at 100% in your own heart. So I don't know what's in your heart, but I covet all the time. Every time I see a hot tub, I think, oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> Every time I see a full head of hair, I think, you know, <laughs> except for hot summer days, that wouldn't be bad, you know, styling it up. Every time I see a nice, thick, full beard, I think that's a healthy looking beard. Yes. I'm not supposed to do that stuff. Apparently, I'm supposed to be happy with what God gave me. So covet, the prime root of that is kamad. It means to delight in, to desire something, or I like this, to pant for, right? That thing where you kind of pant for. And here's what's interesting. Commandment number 10 
is a heck of a lot like commandment number one. It's almost like we've gone full circle here. Not a linear thing, but a, a whole life system, right? If I'm not supposed to covet, it's because the thing I'm supposed to pant for is God. Like a deer panteth for the water. So my soul thirsts for him. The Turkish delight scene in Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Nailed it, C.S. Lewis. He's more excited about little candies than he is about the Lord. So again, you look at kids and toddlers, are they more excited about God or the little candies? It's not even a question with little kids. It's the candy. They want their Turkish delight. And sometimes they'll scream and yell for it. So you're not supposed to commod a house, commod wife, servants, ox, or anything. That's the literal translation. Commod house, commod wife, servants, ass, anything. Servants, ox, ass, anything. I just wanted to say ass again. <laughs> Don't cover your neighbor's wife. That has to do with lust. But it also, in this sense, the adultery one has already been covered. This is more about don't cover your wife as though she's an asset or resource in that person's life that you wish you had. Everybody covets my wife because she's awesome. And you all got to know that because you hang out with us. But we go to church too, and I swear I can see other guys. It's not lust. It's, man, I wish I had a wife that was nice to me like that. I wish I had a wife that honored me like that. I wish I had a wife that could take care of business like that. There's a great song, it's a secular song, and it's probably not entirely appropriate for Bible study, but there's this whole song by... Is it the song by Cake? Shorts for by Cake, right? And it's this guy coveting the kind of woman he wants. And she's some sort of like corporate power player woman in the thing. She's got nails that shine like justice and eyes that burn like cigarettes. And she's got, she's got, she, she will walk through the factory and she will pick up slack and she will cut through red tape. And this is the woman he wants. That's not necessarily lust, even though he talks about long legs. He also, it's, it's an interesting idea because what he wants is a woman who knows who she is, right? And has this confidence that kind of beams. And I think wonderful people, and I'm talking in terms of wives, it's the same thing with husbands. Don't covet some other guy that, man, that guy's awesome, right? I wish I had that kind of boyfriend or husband. That's not the goal. Be happy with what you got, even when you get me. Um, we're not supposed to want or pant for anything. For me, the first time I remember this sin was the desiring of a new Star Wars action figure. I would get one for my birthday, and then they'd come out with a whole new set of action figures, and I just wanted the Boba Fett that came out because it had a cooler rocket pack than the last one did. Or I would think if I got Greedo, I wanted the new Greedo, not the old Greedo. And what it did is throughout my childhood, I assembled this massive collection of action figures that I coveted and I panned for the next one. And I would get it and I'd play with it for like a day and I'd smell that new plastic smell and it made me happy. And then I would put it with the rest of them and I would just covet the next one. Right now, I covet a car that doesn't have a seat that squeaks. We got this car. It's a 2018 Fusion. I was all excited. It's a nice car. And I tell you, the passenger seat, when you sit in it, squeak, squeak. Every time you hit the brakes or the gas, it squeaks. And I'm like, I just want a car that doesn't squeak. I'm guilty of coveting other people's vehicles. This has a huge deal of just being content with what you have. This is what I have today. This is what God's given me. I'm content. Are you going to be any richer with more stuff? No. Every action figure I got did not accumulate one iota to my richness as a human being. Didn't add wealth or value. 
Will you be happier if you're in a house versus an apartment? No. All you're going to do is be in debt, <laughs> right? So coveting leads to imprisonment because you seek after the things that will imprison you. This world has imprisonment waiting for you. God has freedom. If you're happy with God's given, then you're not in prison to the things you want. Most work in the United States of America is done because people want things, right? And we're supposed to work, but we're not necessarily supposed to do it. We're supposed to covet what God has, not what our neighbor has. What does God have for us? That leads to that question. Well, the way we can covet God is we covet our time to pray with him, time for worship. And I think those are very different personalities that prefer prayer over worship or both, right? Gifts. I covet spiritual gifts. We're reading through one by Chuck Smith about all the spiritual gifts. It's a great book, by the way. What's it called? Uh, Living Water. Living Water. It's a wonderful book. We read, read out loud in this family still. That's why I don't know the name of the book because Steph reads it out loud. And we get towards the end of this book and Steph's just like, I don't have any spiritual gifts. And I'm like, first of all, that's a false witness. You're lying. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but she's like, I don't have any, have any spiritual gifts. And I just want to have some of these spiritual gifts. And it's like, what an awesome thing to covet. Yes, you should want the gifts of the Spirit. And if you don't have them, because in America, you don't see a lot of them, because frankly, we're not in the Word and we're not doing what God tells us to do. So why would we think we would get all these gifts, right? But if you covet God's gifts and you seek after them, he says he'll give them to you. So covet them. What else should we covet? Joy. I covet people like Nathan that abound and exude joy, right? Because I'm a scholar. I'm a bookworm and I'm a nerd. And I just sit and I dig into this and I, and I look at people with real joy and I'm like, I wish I had that. Alyssa, the freedom of laughter that she has. I just wish I could laugh that much. I'm not that guy. But that's a godly thing to covet. Covet joy. I want more joy in my life. I want the joy Alyssa has in my heart. And that's a godly thing to covet. That's not coveting her, her slaves, her oxes, her asses, or anything like that. Sorry, Zach. Not what I meant. Biblical context, right? That really, that's not even in my notes. Stick to the notes. I'm just going to move on. I thought peace was another thing to covet. That's so horrible. Grant, you can edit that later, right? True, but horrible. Don't covet those things. We should covet peace. Have you ever met someone that just is like happy with their existence? They just have peace, right? And I shouldn't point people out and go off script. But like Noel, Britta... Bridget, you all kind of have, Zach even has this, Danny has this, just this settlement. Like, there's a peace about you. And maybe that's not true. You're thinking of your own heart going, no, I'm still a mess. But there's a peace there, right? And that's like, man, I want that. I want peace in my life. I want to just feel that enduring peace that surpasses my understanding. That's what I want in my life. That would be awesome. Those are the things to covet. So don't covet all these other things that I won't name again. Covet those things, right? Covet God. David Gusick said, covetousness works like this. Your eyes look upon an object, your mind admires it, the will goes over it again and again, and the body moves to possess it. That's covetousness. Isn't that a great quote? Romans 7, 7 says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? 
Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness under the law unless the law had said, you shall not covenant. There's a standard. Live life happy with what God provides or do your whole life wanting the next thing. And it never goes away. I'll say that being 20 years ahead of most of you. It never goes away. It, the world always gives you the next thing to desire, right? First it's the house, then it's the job, then it's the promotion, then it's retirement. Do you see how ridiculous that is, right? I want to work super hard so I can get super here so that I cannot do it at the end of my life. That's what the world has to offer? I don't want that. I want peace. I want joy. And I'll go there. And I'm going to do that till the day I die. I'm not going to retire from that. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So it comes all the way around. Jesus in Luke 12.15 says, And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things you possess. It's better to go with nothing and be rich in spirit than to go with everything and have no idea what your spirit even is. The disciples are asking each other about all this stuff, and John rebukes them, John 21, 22. And Jesus said to them, if I, it, so the disciples are asking each other who gets to be first, and he's telling Peter he's going to die, like you're going to die, and you're, you're, you've done everything you wanted in your life, but at the end of your life, other people are going to tell you what to do. In other words, you're going to get killed against your will. And Peter goes, what about John? And I love this passage because his first thing is, well, are you going to get him too? Is he going to die? And Jesus says, if I will that he remains till I come, what is that to you? Your job is to follow me. Don't covet his eternal end versus your end. Just do the life I'm giving to you. Without the law, people exist and we exist in coveting. We make money, we spend it, right? We go to the store and get army men because there's a chance that the unique army guy with the cowboy hat will be in the package. So we just keep buying packages of army men, right? We all do that? Okay. That's, the, that's what the world has for us. Matthew twenty two thirty six says, Teacher, which, are the great, which is the great commandment in the law? All these commandments, the Ten Commandments, which one's the greatest one? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The, this is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophets. So how do enthusiastic people from chapter 19 respond to the Ten Commandments? So we're going to wrap up the chapter here. Verse 18, now all the people, well, they just get the Ten Commandments. They said, we want a covenant with God. And they're all like, yeah, we love the covenant. And then God speaks to them and says, this is what I define as good. And their response is this. And I, this is plain old comical. Now all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear. But let not God speak with us lest we die. <laughs> Please, no, Moses, we don't want to hear from God anymore. God's way too powerful. And these laws convict every one of us right? We're all guilty. I don't want to hear that. And that's how we still respond. Most people hear the law and they're like, I don't want to hear that. Sean, you're being way too extreme to say that every one of the commandments comes down to my heart and that my heart's in the wrong place. That's way too extreme. But it's also the law and it's what God wants for us. 
So now the people do more than tremble. They actually back up. I like the line where they stood far off. That means they're all doomed and they don't want to get close to there. The awe of God pushes some people away, but the love of God draws people closer. A very few select people hear the law and they're drawn to it. And they, for some reason, want more of it. That's a huge compliment to anybody who wants to sit on a Sunday night and read the law. And it's, and you look at the good kings, Josiah, Hezekiah, David, and it'll say that they read the law to the people. Like they literally brought the entire country together and read them this. Said, this is what our, cult, our country should look like. So... Moses becomes the mediator. First Timothy 2.5 says, For there's one God and one mediator between, mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. So Moses is a temporary mediator, and after Christ he becomes a permanent one. Verse 20, And Moses said to the people, Don't fear. God has come to test you, and that his fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. This is saying exactly with all these references I've given. It's the same thing. The point of the law is not to convict you, it's to put a fear of God in you so that you know you need grace. And you can go to God and say, please give me grace because I know I'm guilty. That's the whole point of it. The point of the law is to stop doing it. That's what Jesus said to the lady who was being adulterous. Don't do it anymore. Stop, right? Do not fear. Moses doesn't fear God because he actually knew forgiveness. Remember, Moses was a murderer. He was a false witness. He was a coveter of other people's things. He was guilty of almost every one of these things. He'd sinned, and under the law, he met God in the wilderness in a burning bush, and God essentially still wanted to use him even as a sinner. And when you experience that kind of grace in your life, all you want to do is love the Lord and get better and better at doing the law, right? For everybody else, they just back up. The law is a test that we all fail. It says it's a test. We fail that test until the Holy Spirit comes in us now we've been set free from sin, Romans 6.22. And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. As much as the law dooms us, Christ frees us. This is cool stuff. This is big theology, right? But it's so simple, a little kid can understand it. It's amazing. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. This law, the one we just did the last two weeks, that's sin and death. Christ Jesus is the opposite of that. He's the freedom. So the passage ends with a then at the beginning of verse 22. Then means it's a conclusion of everything we just read. So 10 commandments, people want Moses to mediate then. And it's important then because this is a conclusion. This is in some ways the last piece of it. And I'm going to argue this is the 11th commandment. Actually, I'm going to argue for the 11th commandment and 11a, or 11a and 11b. And 11b is keep your pants on. Read ahead. You'll see what I'm saying. 22, then the Lord said to Moses, and I didn't mean to be staring at you when I said that, by the way. (laughs) In general, Zach's having a hard night with me. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven, You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver, gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. An altar of earth you shall make for me. You shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it 
of hewn stone, for if you use your tool on it, you've profaned it. This is an interesting thing. This is a commandment, right? So he's telling Moses, this is how you're going to do this. All these Ten Commandments, then, you're going to need to make some sacrifices to say, I'm sorry. Because if now you know you're a sinner, you're going to give a sacrifice of something alive, and you're going to kill it. And then we don't do sacrifices anymore. What are we supposed to give to God? What are we supposed to kill to make that sacrifice to God today? And the New Testament outlines this theology very clearly. You give yourself to God, and you kill the old person that was the sinner in you, and you bring new life in Christ. You're supposed to give your whole life to God. So commandment number 11 is how to give worship through a sacrifice, how to give something back to God, right? These are the things you're not supposed to do. So God's speaking from heaven directly to the people. These burnt offerings and peace offerings, I'm not going to get into right now like a geek, because when we hit future books of the Bible, these things are outlined in detail, right? And they're beautiful. They're amazing things that God tells his people to do to bring peace between them and God. And then the burnt offering is to say, I'm sorry for my sin. And there's things you're supposed to do which are awesome. We'll get there soon. But look at the form of the altar. They're just supposed to basically stack up some rocks. I think that's really cool because if they start to carve the rocks, they're going to look like Catholic cathedrals like that because humans want to carve things. We want to show our glory and our splendor and we start building it. But the original idea of worship was just stack up some rocks so you have a place to do this where you don't have to bend over on the ground. Like even that is a merciful form for God, right? Just build it. The word profane at the end of verse 22, when we try to add something to our worship, it's profane. It's a desiccation of what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to worship God. And when we put a bunch of effort into that act of making reconciliation, when we pray big elaborate prayers and we add to them to impress other people, we're being profane. Have you ever heard somebody pray that way? You're thinking, you don't talk that way. But when you pray to God, you do this big King James thing. Come on. That's not how we're supposed to do it. Just stack up some rocks and love the Lord, right? Just do what you do naturally, authentically, in a real kind of way. Stop pretending we add something to this relationship. We are receivers of grace. We are not givers of ornate altars, right? Paul got this better than anybody and I love how he says it in 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5. And my speech and in my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith shouldn't stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Here's my prayer. Nobody comes to this Bible study and says, oh, Dickers, man, he's so eloquent. He's so perfect. You can tell he's practiced every word. That is, it's so polished and so nice. Because in doing that, I'm bringing glory to me. And I don't want to bring glory to me. I just want to read the word and understand what it says. What I want people to leave saying is, I got to know chapter 20 better than I think I could have known it by myself. That's the point of Bible study. And I got to eat some awesome cornbread. Right? That's fellowship. Right? Our skill is not relevant in the relation to God. It's profane. I will come to you. Don't miss that promise in that passage. That's an amazing promise. Don't skip over it. God comes to us. God makes a record of his name wherever he goes. He comes to us and then also notice the place, I will bless you. 
if that's a promise, if God's going to bless us when we sacrifice things to him, we give little pieces of our life, all these 10 commandments are pretty much every thought we've ever had our whole life, right? When we take those thoughts and make them sacred, when we turn coveting for a house into coveting for joy, God's going to bless us in that. When we take an adulterous thought and make it a loyal thought and a persistent, reliable thought, when we keep our word, God blesses that. When in, instead of calling people idiots when we're driving on the road, if we just start praying for that person, not knowing who they are, like God will honor and bless that. He'll change our hearts into something beautiful. And I don't know about you, but I look in my heart and outside of God, it's not beautiful. It's selfish. It's thuggish, right? It's base. It's suffering and it's pain. But everything I do in God, man, there's little sparks of beauty there. And I didn't put them there. God did. And those sorts of things make me beautiful to other people. Not because I'm a phenomenal person, but because in some way they can see Christ through me. What a beautiful image. The last verse of this chapter. And this is, by the way, 11b. Nor shall you go up the steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. I don't want your altars high up because to be quite frank, I don't want you to walk up the altar and then I see up your skirt. Like he tells the priests to wear underwear. And this is serious. This is a big deal. I'm not kidding. God doesn't want to see that business, right? He wants you to keep that to yourself. We're supposed to be modest even before God. And I think that's kind of a cool thought. Uh, Later they do an elevated one. So clearly the elevated altar in Ezekiel 43 has to be there. (laughs) But in Ezekiel 44, listen to this, and they shall have linen breeches upon their loins. So in Ezekiel, they build an altar that's higher up with the temple and the tabernacle, but the priests have to wear underwear. And that's part of the rule. And I, this sort of thing amazes me that God would even care. He made it. Why does he care? But on this, he's like, for some reason, God wants to honor that certain things are private to people. And he tells the priest they should wear underwear. So the last commandment, 11b, wear underwear, right? Um, the word altar, uh, we won't, we'll get into when we get into more of the worship stuff. I'm going to review the Ten Commandments. Number one, no other gods. Number two, no idols of worship. Number three, no taking the Lord's name in vain, in vanity. Number four, keep the Sabbath holy. Five, what we got to tonight, honor father and mother. Number six, no murder. Number seven, no adultery. Number eight, no stealing. Number nine, no false witness against others. Number 10, no covet, anything. Again, no other gods. Number 11, worship simply with no pretenses. And number 11B, Keep your pants on, please. Those are the rules. That's it. So are we guilty? Yeah, that's a test. Get over it. Move on. Ask the Lord to forgive you and help the Lord to change your heart so you're not doing those things, right? And I like 11B because I think I've minded that one my whole life. So we're good on that one. Too much information. Let's pray. I know. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your law. Lord, it is hard for us to hear because we are guilty of these things, Lord. And it's hard because we can be ashamed of that, Lord. We can hide in that shame and be imprisoned by that shame. And Lord, we hand that over to you. Lord, we don't want to live in sin. Uh, We want to do as your disciples did and as uh, they did in the first century, Lord, that we cast that sin off and we pursue a life of holiness and sanctity in you. Lord, help us to do that because the benefits are way better. 
the blessing is what we, we covet, Lord, and we want your blessing. So if all we have to do is try to give our hearts to you, help us to change our hearts because we can't. Help us as test failers, Lord, to pass the test of just loving you and coming to you. Lord, help us to sacrifice parts of our life, reasonable pieces where we feel guilty. Uh, Lord, when the Bible steps on our toes, help us to move our toes. Um, We want to serve you and we want to love your law and and love your word. And we don't want to make excuses for ourselves. Uh, We don't want to justify or rationalize our sin. We just want to be holy. And we want the benefits and the blessing of that holiness. Lord, help our hearts to be for you. May your Holy Spirit move in this room and move in our hearts. May your blessing and anointing go on each person in this room tonight and may it go with them through the week. Uh, May your law be something that we love and we lovingly share with others, not as accusers and not as judgmental people, Lord, but people saying, I want to be different and to try to act and do those things. Lord, we ask for your grace in that. We ask for your peace and we ask for your guidance. In Jesus' name we pray.